This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. So our evening services are going to slightly match the morning services, but they're going to be different scriptures most of the time and sort of we'll head in a different direction to make sure that if you attend both services, it'll still be a new and fresh sermon that you can hopefully learn from. And hopefully we'll keep it uh, nice and short for the PM service and it should be pretty good. So this morning it was called Love One Another, but this evening I've called it Love Verse Hate because I thought that sounds a bit more edgy like Love Verse Hate. What are you going to choose? In the red corner, we have love. It's Valentine's Day tomorrow. That matters for some people apparently. Oh, uh, in, in, I don't know if I said red then. In the other corner, we have hate for all the single people tomorrow on the 14th of February. Uh, love versus hate. And just quickly, I want to invite my friend Dean Russell up, who I've given no warning on this. Yeah, give him a clap. Give him a clap. Give him a clap. There's a, there's a microphone over there, Dean. And I just have some simple questions for you. Yeah, I have no idea what I'm doing up here. You told me to come up here and I just want you to respond as you feel led. Okay. Dean. You're lucky I had a coffee and a nap (laughs) before this, otherwise this would be very dangerous. Dean, I think that Canon is the best camera for photography and videography. Uh, Okay. Do my honest. (laughs) Uh, A couple of years back? Yeah, for sure. But Sony... No, I'm talking about still now. Still now. (laughs) Definitely disagree. Sony have been upping their game with colour, science, and just the quality. The low light sensitivity of those cameras is nuts. It's crazy. Yeah, so five years ago, you would be right. Now, you're like out No, but what you're missing right now in this moment is that Canon is better. What you're missing is that I have a Sony and you have a Canon, and we're very biased. I know that you're an educated, uni-educated videographer, but I'm a pastor of a church called to tell the truth. <laughs> and I just think Canon is... Is better and and I edit my footage when I'm creating a video right on a Mac. You do. Congratulations <laughs> for actually having a new Mac that yes. actually can <laughs> can actually handle more than 1080. Yeah. And what that do you edit your videos on? I work on my I, on my PC. Oh, I see where this oh. is going. I see where this is going. Oh. Wow. Oh, on your wow. PC, you okay. reckon? Yes. Oh. Apple are great. Apple yep. are good. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Apple are awesome, but they are just so bloody expensive. For what, the, for what you get. But it's not the great. coolness factor outweighs the expense. Factor. I mean, the um, ease of use. I mean, like, you know, if you don't know your way around computers yeah. very much, like, it's just, I don't want to, I don't want to sound rude, but they're easy to use. Whereas a PC, you know, you can have so much more range. Like, yeah, you need to be a bit more advanced, but. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. You and can do so much When I edit videography on my Mac, I love editing videos. Mm. I like to use the best editing software, Final Cut Pro. Yeah, but Premiere, man. <laughs> Premiere is <laughs> very, Premier's, at least like on, with Premiere, you can do it on multi-platform. Like if you have Final Cut, you have to have an Apple, which slows you down. Uh-huh. Uh, if with Premiere, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My goodness, that is like that is. Do you know how many quality films and TV shows use Premiere? Like, all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Dean, you're wrong about a lot of things. But this evening, I'm going to choose to still love you. 
You may take your seat. You may take your seat. <laughs> in the midst of our differences and in the midst of difference, how do we choose love? The truth is, some people are just difficult to love. Like, um, like, <laughs> like murderers, Nazis, anyone that edits on Premiere Pro, <laughs> and vegans. But no, <laughs> not, no offense to you out there if you're a vegan. I don't mean to lump you in with Nazis and murderers, but some people are very difficult to love. Uh, Pastor John did an amazing sermon on love this morning, and I encourage you, because it will be very different to our sermon this evening, I do encourage you to go check it out, because um, Pastor John got into some amazing Greek words, and he had some amazing practical tips on how we can love each other as a church um, and as the body of Christ, and I encourage everyone. Um, Sunday night's awesome. But you know when you get like during the week and the, the, the energy from Lewis's Sunday night powwow sermon has sort of worn off and you need a little pick-me-up, because we're doing different sermons, you can go on the podcast app and listen to the morning sermons. I encourage you to go check out Pastor John's sermon. Now, I made a very bad mistake before I, before I came up here, and it was that my bookmark is still in Pastor John's scriptures from this morning. So please bear with me as I turn to the right page. John 15, which we spoke on last week. I've got two sort of scriptures I'm going to base this off. And the first is John 15, 12 to 14, which reads like this. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do <laughs> I call you servants. For a servant... Wait, am I reading the right one? Sorry, not 13 to 14. 12, 12, starting at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And Jesus says this after saying these words, which he previously read just a few chapters or perhaps a few minutes beforehand in John 13, 34 to 35, which say this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And as I said, Pastor John got into some amazing words in the Greek and he, and he spoke out some, some amazing things this morning. So I want you to uh, go check that out. But tonight I want to focus on who these words were actually spoken to in the moment when Jesus read them. Jesus was speaking to the 12 disciples at the Last Supper when he read both of these passages, when he, when he read both of these quotes, when he spoke both of these quotes, I should say. He was at the Last Supper speaking to his 12 disciples, to the people he'd walked with for three years while he was on earth. And they were an eclectic mix, much like Narara is. I was just reflecting this week, as you know, we've had all these staff changes and it's funny, when you're employing people, you know those people have come from elsewhere. And it sort of made me think like long term, it's like, where is Lewis going to end up? 
Will Lewis one day apply for a job somewhere else? Will Lewis one day do something else like plant? Will Lewis, what will Lewis end up doing? And upon those reflections, I was thinking, geez, it would be great to belong to a church or congregation where everyone sort of understood scriptures the same way that I do or where people sort of thought about things the way that I do, or where people sort of had an opinion on preaching the same way that I do, wouldn't it be great to belong to a congregation that was sort of all like Lewis? <laughs> For you, some of you, that would be absolute hell on earth. For me, that would be absolute heaven. But Narara is not like that. We are an eclectic mix, just like Jesus's 12 disciples. Who were part of Jesus's 12? Um... There was, there there was, sorry, sorry, I'm going to have to rely on you, Matt. My click is not working. (laughs) The next slide says, who was Jesus talking to? Is that one able to come up? Or are we frozen all over? In which case, I'll just run with it. We'll get there. It might pop up. Let me just tell you. Jesus' disciples were about 13 to 30. So we, you know, there's classic youth Bible verses, and if you've been in youth long enough, you'll, you'll know these verses off by heart. Verses like, don't let anyone look down on you because you were young, but instead set an example for the other believers in, you know, purity, faith, all love, all these things. And you wonder, okay, that's, that's sort of interesting, but it is actually very true. Because Jesus' closest followers, the people he actually sent out into the world, were between the ages of 13 and 30. As in one of those, (laughs) that's, what is that, a year seven or eight kid running around, being one of Jesus' closest disciples. I wouldn't trust any of our 13-year-olds. I hardly trust them with the basketball. Like, our leaders have to keep an eye on that thing, because that thing's going over the fence. Jesus trusted the 13-year-olds with his church. Like, running the whole church all the way to 30. Now, some 30-year-olds get along well with 13-year-olds. Some 30-year-olds do not. Some 30-year-olds cannot stand stand 30-year-olds. What an eclectic, different mix, even in the ages. Some of them were fishermen, so they weren't very educated. Or maybe they were educated, but in different ways, like they were street smart. They knew where to fish. They knew where the good spots were. They knew how to fix nets. They worked with their hands. But some of them were people like tax collectors, or the Bible in, in the Greek sort of calls them a publican, but they're like, they like an official that almost is a Jewish person who works for Rome. And, you would, and if you've been around church a while, but maybe you haven't, but we talk about tax collectors or publicans like they were traitors because they worked for the oppressors. Like they were Jewish people who got jobs with the Romans who were oppressing the Jewish people so that they could get a payday. That's sort of like what a tax collector or, or a publican was. They worked for the oppressors. And uh, so pretty, pretty awful in some sense. They were like, you know, Jewish traders, but also they were very smart. They were sort of good with money. They were sort of cunning. They were sort of all those sorts of things. So you have, you have smart sort of these tax publicans, sort of like politician-style people. And then you have fishermen, like work with your hand-style people. You know, usually those people don't get along very well. One of them was a zealot, Simon the Zealot. Zealots were like, they were a group of Jewish people who were like hardcore politically. Sort of think like, this is not a great, but when I was reading the definition, look, this is not a great 
tie together, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's sort of like One Nation or Pauline Hanson, like the go-getters, like the people down the front at the protest, like really going against the government, like people that, you know, a lot of people can't stand them, but a lot of people rally around them and they're very loud and like, you know, sort of, you know, One Nation, you know, it's like for the Jews, you know, that sort of thing. Zealots were like really passionate. They were very fiery. They were like the public speakers that were like, like the zealots, they, it was like, they were like, the, the zealots were, you know, that, that kind of people. But in the Jewish culture, there was also things like Essenes and there were the Pharisees and there were the Sadducees, all different types of Jew and zealots, just one of them. It's sort of like different denominations, like zealots would be the Pentecostals, like waving their flags and raising their hands. And then you got the Essenes who are sort of like their local house churches. They're just very reflective. It would be like, let's come for 45 minutes and do a little meditation. Then you had the Sadducees. They were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the afterlife, which is a preacher joke. And then you had the Pharisees, which is sort of almost mostly what Jesus sort of aligned in. Like we, we sort of talk about Pharisees like they were bad guys, but the Pharisees were just a type of person. They weren't actually bad guys. It's just Jesus often talked to them and called them <laughs> the specific people were bad guys. The Pharisaical order necessarily was So you have all these different types of people and the, the disciples were made up of, you know, the 12. They might have fit more like an Essene. They might have fit more like a Pharisee. Some of them might have fit more like a Sadducee. One of them was definitely a zealot. He gets a mention because like if you had someone from one nation in your 12 groups of friends, they'd probably get a lot of mentions when you're talking to other people. So you have all these different kinds of people and one of them, of course, was a traitor. He had... Judas Iscariot, Iscariot meaning sort of liar essentially, Judas the liar, Judas the traitor. A group of 12, very, very different. Our church is very, very different. I did a survey with our youth leaders, so sort of like a a small group of young adults, 19 of us, and I asked the question, uh, creation, answer what you think sounds most accurate at this stage of your life. Blue being, I believe God created the world through evolution and the Big Bang. Red being, I believe God created the world in seven days. And the yellow being, I believe God created the world over a long period of time. Now, this church has different opinions on lots of different theological issues. And here is a quick example on the issue, the theological issue of creation. How do you believe the world was created? Did God create it in seven days? Did God create it... Uh, but over a long period of time? Or did God use the Big Bang and evolution to create? Well, just in a group of 19 young adults that attend this church, we have very different opinions. And amongst all our differences, not just on this theological issue, but on all of them, how do we love? We must love like Jesus. Jesus speaks to his 12 disciples. Do you know how the world's going to know that you're my disciples? If you love each other. If the fisherman loves the tax collector. If the 13-year-old has brotherly love for the 30-year-old. That's how they will know that you're my disciples. If you can love each other despite your differences. And Jesus loved every single one of the 12. To some extent, even the traitor. And if Jesus can love all those different, you know, ideologies and aspects of a person and idiosyncrasies, I'm sure some of the 12 are quite strange. Maybe that's why Jesus chose them. Then we must love like Jesus. We've got to love each other despite our differences. I have to, I won't give away which, I, I mean, I won't give away which of the pie chart I am. 
but my slice of the pie, I can't even do hands because then you'll try to guess which one it, it was. Um, my part of the pie chart has to love the other parts of the pie chart. In fact, in our youth ministry, if I don't love all parts of that theological pie chart, we're not going to bring glory to God because our team won't function like a team and the youth ministry won't flourish. And if the youth ministry doesn't flourish, people won't be brought to know Jesus. And if people aren't brought to know Jesus, then God isn't being glorified. We must love each other and so must our PM service and so must our AM service and so must NVBC. Because our love is not built on our differences, it is built on Jesus and his example. Jesus says to his 12 disciples, you know, you've got to love me, you've got to love each other like I have loved you. Uh, this might be a short service, but I want to end with the story of uh, a story to sort of teach us how we might be able to do this. And this guy did it in a way that was pretty phenomenal, that we may never get the chance to love others like this guy loved others. But, but I want to share this story. For some of you, you may have heard the story before because we often tell the story in churches. But I want to tell the story again because I remember when I heard the story for the first time, it was really impacting. And so although many of the older Christians may have heard this story before, if you're in the room and you're young and it's the first time you're hearing the story, it might be impacting just like it was for me the first time I heard the story. This guy's name was Maximilian Colby. Uh, for starters, beard goals. I do want to get to that, to that level. Maximilian Colby. Maximilian Colby was actually a, a Franciscan priest, which means he was a, a Catholic priest and he, he entered the priesthood quite young. He was very, very devoted to God and to Christianity in his Catholic faith at that time in Poland. And uh, some say that he even got a vision when he was quite young of, uh, you know, in, at Narara, we don't necessarily pray to the Virgin Mary, but let's imagine that he had a vision of the Virgin Mary uh, just as sort of like a spiritual vision. And, you know, even we here in this church believe that sometimes we might get spiritual dreams or visions. But So, so he got a vision of the, the, uh, the Virgin Mary essentially holding you know, two crowns in her hands, sort of like, you know, sort of like, um, what's, what's that movie in The Matrix where it's like the red pill or the blue pill? And the red, and the, and she had a crown, a uh, white crown and a red crown. And the white crown was like, you know, you're going to de devote your life to me and uh, be well known. You're going to teach others. And the, and the red crown was like, you'll uh, be a martyr. You'll pass away in my name. And apparently Maximilian in his vision goes, ah, oh, give me both. He said, this as a young man, I'll take both both crowns and uh, so that's sort of part of the tradition of Maximilian Colby is that they say when he's quite young he had this vision but as he grew up he became a Franciscan priest which is like a hardcore priest like you know they take vows like really strict vows like to devote themselves to God like a like a monk or a nun might do we don't have those in our uh, Protestant context but it's sort of a symbolism of his devotion to God and uh, obviously World War II came and because of his devotion to God and as the Nazis came through Poland and because of the way that he was choosing to behave, he was actually sent with many of the other priests at that time to concentration camps uh, all over the place. And he was sent to Auschwitz. Auschwitz? I'm not saying that right, but... Auschwitz? Auschwitz. 
everyone knows what I'm talking about. Despite the humour, a very horrific place. And he gets put in a cell with a bunch of other men. And uh, during his time there, a few prisoners actually escaped. And because a few prisoners escaped, the guards decided that they were going to pick 10 random men and put them to death to sort of be like, if you escape, if anyone escapes, the people that you leave behind will die. And so they pick 10 random men. And one of the men they pick starts like crying, bawling their eyes out, like, and he's saying, what about my family? What about my family? I've got children. What about my family? What about my family? What about my family? And Maximilian Colby is standing off to the side and approaches one of the guards and say, I would like to take that man's place. He has a family, he has children. I would like to take that man's place. And the guards, sort of shocked and stunned, decide, okay, we'll let you take that man's place. So Maximilian Colby goes, stands with the 10, and the man who was crying about his family and children were able to go back to the rest. The method of execution was to put them in starvation cells. So they put the 10 men in a cell and they were just not going to bring them food and slowly, in view of everyone else in the camp, would pass away. But Maximilian Colby (laughs) starts praying, chanting scripture and singing hymns. And all of the men, most of them not even Christian, start praying, chanting scripture and singing hymns with him. And every time the guards go past, they're just shocked. They're just in awe. They're just like, what? why won't these people's will break? They're just there kneeling, singing hymns. Slowly, one by one, they all start to pass away. Maximilian Colby was the last one left after many, many days, still praying, still chanting scripture, still singing hymns. To the point where the guards were like, he's been without food a long time. And they decide that they'd put him to death via lethal injection. And he never once shows any hatred towards the guards, but goes calmly in prayer, speaking scripture and singing hymns right until his death. And Maximilian Colby's a story that we tell because it's a man who sacrificed himself for another person the man who wasn't chosen to go to the starvation chamber. Maximilian Colby, he was devoted to the commander. You know, Jesus says, I give you this command, love one another. Maximilian Colby, as a Franciscan priest, he was absolutely devoted to the commander who is Jesus, who gives his command to love one another. And he was devoted absolutely to Jesus, to the point of death to the point of actually loving others as Christ had loved him he was devoted to the commander two he loved despite difference the men that he was in cells with some of them weren't Christian at all some of them were just other Polish people assumably some of them were Jews and also he loved the the guards he never once uh, swore at them spat at them did anything to hate them But simply when they came past, he'd smile and sing a hymn. He loved despite difference. 
And finally, he brought glory to God. To this day, we tell the story of Maximilian Kolbe. In fact, the Catholics made him a saint, Saint Maximilian Kolbe. To this day, he brings glory to God every time we tell that story. And I know someone who speaks in a lot of um, high schools, actually a lot of Catholic high schools, even though they, they attend Hope You See, and they, they speak to something like, I think it was like 200 schools, their company a year. And in their talk, they always tell the story of Maximilian Kolbe. And he was telling me that every school they go to, like Christian kids, non-Christian kids, are just brought to tears by this story and are impacted by how a Christian could live that sort of life. To this day, that story brings glory to God. And it's just like us. If we choose to love others like Christ loved us, then we are being devoted to our commander because God commands it. And we need to love despite the differences. We have to love every type of creation theology and we have to love every type of difference that different people in Narara have. We just have to for the sake of the kingdom so that we can bring glory to God. We must love each other. And it is very, very hard to do. <laughs> very, very hard to do. But I believe that as we pray and seek God and reflect on what he did for us, we get a sense of how much we're called to do that for others. So what did Jesus do for us or how did he show us his love? Jesus, while we were still sinners, lost in our ways, lost in our transgressions, he loved us so much that he decided to take his sin upon himself on the cross. And maybe you've heard this a million times or maybe you're hearing it for the first time. But Jesus, the creator of the universe, loved us so much that he took everything bad we've ever done, all the sins we could ever commit, he took them upon himself so that we could be reunited with God and so that we could be made whole. And, and he did that, he, he, was, he, he loved us so much to the point of death on a cross and it was painful and it was horrific, much like I'm sure um, Maximilian Kolbe's death was painful and horrific. And he almost did it with, with joy as he's on the cross, his love for us, our sin being completely covered because he took it upon himself. And he died and he rose again and he conquered death for us so that we can conquer death, so that when we die, we can spend eternity with him. That's how much Jesus loved us. He died for us. If you're young, maybe you've watched The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe. You know the lion, the one that the witch tries to kill? It's sort of like the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, sort of an analogy for Christianity. And the lion is Jesus and the lion is God. And everything in, about that lion in that movie is sort of like a representation of God and what Jesus did for us. That's how much he loved us so that we could be made whole. And because he did that for us, how much more should we love others? This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.